This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And right now I am giving this show on a very full stomach courtesy of our corporate quarterly lunch. Is that true for you too, Mark? Yes. Well, no. No, we were told we should not leave the table with a full stomach because it's better for our health. So I tried to obey that. Yeah, we had a speaker today who told us that as a Japanese proverb. Maybe. Or saying. It was interesting. But anyway, we just came back from a great lunch. So if we fall asleep in the middle of this podcast, you'll know what's going on. We're just full. We're satiated. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Um, so who's joining us today? Joining us today is John Inazu. He's the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. And among the many things he's authored, probably the most relevant for our conversation today is Confident Pluralism. Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. We're really glad to have John on this podcast. He's been a regular contributor to CT, and whenever I see his byline, I'm, I'm most anxious to read what he has to say. Hey, John. Hey, it's great to be with you all. Thanks for having me. How's summer treating you guys? Uh, summer in St. Louis is getting hot, so it's about time to head east. Because it's less hot there? I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> well, it's less hot at the beach. Fair enough. Yeah, it's in the 90s over here in Chicago. So this week on the podcast, we will be speaking about Bernie Sanders and an interesting event that happened politically last week. So Senator Sanders' grasp of Christian orthodoxy and his commitment to religious freedom was questioned last week following his comments at a political hearing. Wheaton alumnus Russell Vogt President Donald Trump's pick for deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget was badgered by Sanders for his Christian convictions. Sanders accused vote of being Islamophobic and making statements that are, quote, indefensible and, quote, hateful, drawing on a piece vote had written about his own faith last year after a professor at his alma mater was suspended for beliefs about Islam. The senator challenged the nominee on his belief that salvation is secured only through Christ. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple million. Are you suggesting that all of these people stand condemned? What about Jews? Do they stand condemned too? Said Sanders, a secular Jew. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? End quote. Christians, especially including the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's Russell Moore, criticized Sanders for suggesting that religious beliefs could disqualify someone for public office, arguing that his line of questions was a religious test. But Sanders' actions raise larger questions about Christian literacy in the United States. What can Christians expect non-Christians to know about the fundamentals of their faith? How should Christians articulate the nuances of their theology to an increasingly pluralistic and non-religious country? So before we get to mine and Mark's reactions to this particular incident that happened last week, I want to just take the time to remind everyone that... You make this podcast possible by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine, and you do that most particularly by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. As we mentioned before, we had our June issue recently come out. We had been promoting all this Cambodia coverage. We also have an interesting article in there about listening and the importance of listening. Mark, do you remember the point that they were making in this piece about how we change people's minds, shockingly, by not talking? Yeah, one of the most yeah influential ways to 
shape other people's lives by not talking sometimes and just listening, really listening, asking good questions to find out what they think, what they believe. And that's, they realize that you actually really care about them and they begin to wonder about what you believe and why. Kind of reverse to the thinking that we usually... At least for me. I love to talk and tell people what they should think rather than hear what they want to say to me. Do you feel like you learned that listening is really important in your work as a pastor? Yeah, but even as a pastor, you're tempted. You have, you've been filled with all this knowledge after three years of seminary and you're anxious to dump it on people. And so it's a really hard spiritual discipline to just be a good listener. I'm now in my 60s and I will say I'm still learning how to listen. It's a very, very difficult It's just so do. counterintuitive, right? Yeah. Like if we have to change people's minds, it's going to come from us, not from their own kind of processing through their thoughts. So anyway, it's a great piece and I hope that you all have a chance to take a time to read it. And again, that's available in our newest June issue. You can get that online right now or also the physical copy is available. Again, it's orderct.com slash quick to listen. Let's go back to Bernie Sanders now. Mark, I would love to hear your gut reaction to this incident that played out last week. Well, as you know, Morgan, I am uh, the champion, one of the champions of beautiful orthodoxy here at Christianity Today. And I will admit, after I heard about this story, the first thing that came to mind was, Sanders, what an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very uncharitable thing to say, but it seemed to me to be so clueless about a number of things that we'll get into in the show, that I was actually shocked of a person with his experience and his understanding of how the Constitution works, that he would be questioning a person about his religious beliefs, assuming that he knew exactly what the consequence of those beliefs were. And it did it did reveal, okay, there are a lot of people that just really don't know Christian belief, how it's very similar to Muslim belief on this particular topic that he was talking about, actually. He found it offensive. Most Muslims wouldn't don't find it offensive because they know that we think they're condemned, and they think we're condemned. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the religious dialogue that goes on between us. But the fact that he didn't even grasp that was just, just a surprise and a, a reminder. There's a lot of work to do in terms of helping the general public understand what we believe and why we believe it and what difference it does and doesn't make in our actions. Yeah, I think the most surprising thing was that it came from someone who's a veteran politician. And it's it's not someone that is from my generation who was just elected to office. I honestly would not be surprised to hear something like this from someone who's seven to ten years older than me, even, and who's kind of used to this line of reasoning, like, you can't believe that, you know, you Christ can't do this the position. Only way. Yeah. Yeah. How, how narrow-minded, yeah. Exactly. exactly. And just because this kind of expectation that's almost like, would you be able to actually serve people if you did? You know, could you serve all people equally? Which I think is kind of a good faith reading of this. Like, could you actually do your job well and serve these communities if you did believe these views on salvation? But again, it was also the sense of like, whoa, you know, Senator Sanders, is this your first time kind of encountering this? I mean, you know, he works, he represents Vermont, right? Which is not necessarily known as like the evangelical heart of this country. <laughs> exactly. And so potentially that's not something that, you know, evangelicals in Vermont have even been decided to lead with when they do engage politics. I don't know. I guess it was kind of almost what is this telling us about the larger state of where we are with like Christian literacy in this country? Well, good thing we're going to talk about it some more because I can tell you and I have a lot of thoughts on this. So, John, I would love to know what do you make of Sanders questioning last week and what surprised you? You know, I think I read it kind of similarly to what I heard the two of you say. And uh, we've known from a lot of different writers describing the, quote, religion problem of the Democrats, that there's been sort of a lack of awareness. But I think what surprised me maybe was the rawness in which that lack of awareness was expressed in this line of questioning. And so it was a reminder that the baseline level of knowledge is not that deep when it comes to some probably more elite members of the Democratic Party and and also other members of society. Did you find anything particularly illuminating and maybe not just about Sanders, but 
larger larger assumptions about where we are in society. Well, you know, on the, uh, the on the charitable reading of it, I think it's important to ask nominees questions about whether they are going to treat people of different religions fairly or not. And one of the interesting ironies here, I think, is that it was Sanders himself who was critiqued by some folks in the Clinton campaign about his possible religious views or lack of religious faith, with the implication being that you might not be able to trust this person because of his particular faith. And I think the constitutional and democratic commitments we have are that we have office holders irrespective of religious oaths or tests. And so whether one is a Christian, an atheist, or a Muslim, one can be a leader in this country. And the, the, the relevant question is whether that person can treat people of other religions or of no religion fairly under the law. This is more of a theoretical thing, but if that conversation would have had the opportunity to go deeper, I mean, obviously there's all sorts of Christian teaching that work that would have imply to him that Christians would be as fair, if not more fair, all summarized by Jesus' command to love our neighbor, all summarized by the fact that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So regardless of where we th- whether we think someone's a believer or not, it seems like if we're called to imitate God, we're going to love them to the point of death. That's kind of our calling as Christians. But of course, that part of the conversation never got in the conversation. I would think that's the one thing more religious literacy, and this would apply to the Christian faith, this would apply to Islam. If you go deeper, you realize that people have these, what seem contradictory views, but in our heart, because we live them out day by day, they're not so contradictory. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it's it's more complicated because of the breadth of different beliefs within particular religious faith. So I certainly agree with you that you and I and Morgan might explain our faith just as you did, but there are other Christians out there who would absolutely treat people of other religions less favorably, and they shouldn't be in public office. And uh, just as there are people of other faiths uh, who would be similarly biased. So with all of these faith traditions, there are internal contestations over what is the right interpretation of Christianity, the right interpretation of what Jesus said. And some people conclude that that means treating everyone fairly, and others uh, others conclude the opposite. And so I think there's no blanket statement we can make, which is why sometimes these hearings are actually pretty useful. That's a good qualification. Yeah, let me take Bernie Sanders' side for a, a moment. I've been thinking about this as you've been talking, John. I would think his Jewish history, his Jewish heritage, has played some role in his concerns here. So, for example, if a someone who'd been nominated were to have said, yeah, I actually think Jews are inferior to Aryans, and I, this is not going to actually affect how I make rulings, but I do believe that. I have to admit that I do believe that. Certainly he would be alarmed. Most Americans would be alarmed if we said that about about any any race or group of people. So, I mean, what would be the difference between, and most of us would agree that he, this person probably shouldn't be, shouldn't hold that office, even though it's not they might even defend it religiously. I believe the Bible teaches that blacks are a secondary race or that Jews are now rejected by God. How would that differ in your mind from the type of question and answer that was given in this particular case? Yeah, that's a great thought experiment. And it raises the observation that the acceptable bounds of society and then within that the subset of acceptable elected officials is always going to be a contingently bounded question by which i mean there's going to be some consensus that says certain views are just not going to be welcome here so you're we're not going to have uh, a member of al-qaeda be confirmed by the senate and we're we're not going to have the overt racist be confirmed by the senate and those those kinds of questions 
may evolve or shift over time. And so one of the questions being forced by this particular controversy and exchange is at what point does an exclusive belief in religious truth claims become disqualifying for public office? And I think that's an open question. I mean, I think for most of our history, it has been well within the mainstream to hold those kind of beliefs and to govern effectively, but there's no guarantee that continues into the future. Yeah, I think it's an interesting tension that, you know, speaking as a Christian who holds this belief, that's an interesting tension within my own self, too, of how would I know that I am doing my job if I was in public office in a way where I didn't privilege a group of people? You know, how do I go to church where this belief may be affirmed and then come to work and recognize that those fears are separate? And there's been even longer discussions that we've been having as a country right now about like implicit bias, um, which is behavior that you don't even know that you're participating in. But it does seem that there would be some effect in how you treat people based on the types of beliefs that you hold and whether those people, you know, hold the same beliefs as you. Yeah, I think that's a fair point that that our core beliefs can certainly push us to certain presumptions. And that's why it's important to be around people who can challenge those beliefs or question whether we're living them out accurately. And and we need, we all need more of that in life. So I want to go back to this idea of a religious test for a second. So obviously when senators, right, are making this decision whether or not they're going to approve a particular nominee, they do want to vet whether this person is going to treat everyone fairly and not just a preferred class. What are you allowed to ask people and what types of questions about faith are permissible here? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. And I've been thinking about the theoretical implications. As far as I can tell, I don't see a direct violation of the Establishment Clause from the line of questioning by Senator Sanders. He's free to ask what he wants. He's free to vote how he wants. And if anything, the proper response should be a political response that says, if you ask those kinds of questions uh, or you vote that way, that's not the kind of leader that we should have, although the question of who the we is becomes a complicated one there. I think the more interesting constitutional question becomes, what if he were the swing vote over a nominee's uh, approval? And and if therefore his particular belief about the nominee's religious faith were the decisive factor? Or what if he collaborated with others on a committee or in the Senate effectively to block this particular nominee or really anyone who shared his beliefs on the basis of religious faith. Then I think we get into a far more interesting constitutional question, although it's not clear to me how the courts would come out on that. Yeah, so so to me, this might be too naive, but the question is not what you believe about another group, but what's your history of treating that other group when you've had opportunities as a government official or a pastor or whomever? That seems to be the real test. Uh, We do know that people who are anti-Semitic have a history of saying and doing things toward Jews that are nefarious and we don't like them. And like you said, John, we have Christians who actually act on beliefs of the inferiority of other religions, but we also have a whole group of Christians who don't, who actually go out of their way to be kind and loving and gracious and patient with people who aren't believers. So it seems to me it might be best to boil it down to how has this person actually acted when they've had the opportunity? I think that's right. And, you know, a line that I quote a lot in talks that I give is from Rousseau. Rousseau said, it is impossible for men to live at peace with those they think are damned. And I think actually much of the American experiment is proving precisely the contrary, that in fact, despite uh, very deeply held beliefs with significant consequences, we have figured out a way to live together. And we often look back at the founding and say, you know, wow, what an easier, simpler time because everyone with any kind of political power was a white male Protestant, which is true, uh, but it's also the case. (laughs) 
they had they had significant theological differences, differences over which other people around the world were killing each other for. And so the fact that they figured out a way to do it is no small thing. And uh, I think to the extent that we can continually and perpetually prove Rousseau wrong, we're better off for it. And so at some point, the majority of people in the public square either broadly shared the same Christian beliefs or were knowledgeable of them. At what point did that start shifting? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. It, it has not been that long. And so within a generation or two ago, you could sort of assume that people had a broad understanding of the basic tenets of Christianity. People could, you know, name at least a couple of the Ten Commandments and talk about, you know, maybe name the four Gospels or something like that. And you could have a basic sense of the major Christian holidays and what they meant and some aspects of faith. And that that was a presumed sense of cultural knowledge that has eroded in the past several decades. Do you know why exactly it started shifting? I don't. I mean, you want to ask a religious historian about that question. I think certainly school norms played a part of it so that when you had a Protestant kind of norm in public schools and when more people went to public schools, you had the undergirdings of basic religious faith. You also had, you know, even a couple generations ago, most colleges and universities having some kind of quasi-liturgical component to what they did that reflected Christian beliefs or or signs or memorials on campus that reinforced Christian ideals. And most of those have uh, gone away in the last couple of decades. Just to go back to Sanders and again, and and assuming that he's speaking as someone who is encountering um, this Christian conviction for, seems like, one of the first times in his life, this makes me think again about just kind of like Christians educating people within the public square about what they do believe. What are ways that you have seen Christians or people of other faiths um, widely communicate to the public what their beliefs are? This is maybe a subset of just communication skills in general, that you start with gaining a, a trust and understanding of your audience. You don't start with your major, most dramatic, most uh, controversial claims. And so people who are willing to take the time to build trust with an audience and to be good-natured and self-aware, I think Tim Keller does this well. I think my friend Ibu Patel, who's a progressive Muslim, does this well on behalf of his faith. Uh, I think Russell Moore does this well. There, there are examples of people who are working hard to communicate to an audience without assuming the audience is going to be with them from step one. Yeah, that assumption piece seems really critical in not a condescending way, but in a way that actually seeks to educate people. It's also there's a kind of common sense relational dynamic to it that you don't start with the hardest questions. So when I'm getting into a discussion with someone about race, I'm not going to lead with the hardest most divisive questions about race. I'm going to lead with questions like, what's your name? And what kind of movies do you like? And sort of laying the groundwork to form a relational connection before diving into the hardest questions that are going to be the most emotionally and relationally difficult ones. Yeah. I mean, this brings to mind some other conversations we've had on this podcast uh, in relation to the relationship between the LGBT community and the Christian community. One aspect of that is, is the LGBT community can't imagine how Christians could be nice and loving toward people whose lifestyle they find sinful. And yet what we've seen in many instances is, is when Christians initiate relationships with the people from the LGBT community and just they each get to know each other. They both find out a lot of the stereotypes they think about the other, get thrown out as they meet a real human being who actually interacts with other human beings in a humane way. It does go a long way, just laying the groundwork of a good relationship. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, 
Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I want to go back to this specific claim that Sanders is, is talking about. So Orthodox Christians do believe that Jesus is the only way to find salvation. And yet this tenet is definitely 100% in tension with our culture's ideal regarding tolerance. John, how have you seen Christians artfully and eloquently navigate this tension as it's come up? You know, I think one way to do it is just to double down on the starkness and gravity of the claims of Jesus Christ, that this is kind of the the all-in claim on our lives. And so I guess for one thing, our lives ought to be reflecting the magnitude of that claim, but also to realize that this is this means everything, right? We're, we're making a claim in a non-relativistic sense, not about simply what happens to us when we die, but what happens to the entire universe in the end of time. And so I think of Russell Moore's line from Onward, where he's getting into this complex discussion about sexuality. And he says, you know, if you think my beliefs about sexuality are weird, wait till you hear about my belief that a man is coming back on a horse to reclaim the world, right? These are <laughs> these are stark and striking claims. And if we take them seriously, then our lives should reflect this kind of a difference. I, I think of uh, one of my favorite verses from Scripture is Paul in 1 Corinthians saying, if it's just for this life that I have hoped, then pity me beyond everyone, right? But if it's... Uh, uh, if it's something else that I'm staking my life on, then this is going to be determinative. And so I think the pe- the kinds of people that start with the magnitude and scope of what difference the claims of Christ make in our lives are the people who can be most effectively navigating the challenges of really a, an overwrought tolerance and relativism in some parts of culture. So maybe, I'm saying this facetiously, we should start off with the most radical things Jesus asks of us, giving up all our wealth for the poor, etc., and shock them with all the other things Jesus tells us. And then when we say things like, Jesus is the only way to salvation, it will seem like a minor thing compared to the other things he's asking us to do. <laughs> well, it could, I mean, that's part of it, right? But I think what you're hitting on is actually something very important, that we ought to be as concerned with showing the claims of Christ as much as we say them. And so that our lives, well before our conversation in public or in private about the exclusive truth claims of Christ, ought to be reflecting the significance of those claims. And so when people ask, why are you living differently in all of these ways. That should be well apparent before somebody is confronted with these are the foundational claims of our beliefs. Yeah, I think a good illustration of that was when Mother Teresa came to the prayer breakfast and after a lifetime of sacrificial service of the poor, for her to stand up at that breakfast and then essentially condemn abortion, it was very controversial and made everybody nervous, but no one could denigrate her for making that statement. She had lived a life that was a life of sacrifice for the life of others. That's when a statement like that really is powerful. It makes me think of the old young life adage, earn the right to be heard. If people see that the beliefs that you have have cost you something in terms of political capital or cultural standing, I think that they're a little bit more apt to come gently to some of these tougher beliefs. If they think that you still want 
you know, all the cultural cachet as someone who does, you know, who acts in other mainstream ways, it can be a little bit more difficult to to see them with beliefs that can seem intolerant or very divisive or very harmful because they don't understand how it, it serves anything else than yourself. It's far more radical when you're able to to really demonstrably show, yes, I believe all of these different things, and some of them have much more difficult repercussions for my own personal life. Now you're getting a little personal. Can we move on to something else? <laughs> <laughs> too hard. Too hard. <laughs> Jesus, this is too hard. Yeah, well, I mean, but I think that is one interesting tension that comes to play when it comes to questions like politics, right? Because people are wanting to be put into positions where they're going to have control over other people's lives and how they spend their money. And it, it can be difficult to swallow and probably increasingly difficult to swallow if you don't trust that that person is guided by something that really is going to have everyone's concern out there. And so, you know, to the extent that people might use your beliefs about salvation as a proxy for that, I feel like that's understandable in many ways. John, do you think it's reasonable for us to expect our politicians to be religiously aware about every faith? Yeah, I doubt it. I mean, we've got a plethora of faiths in this country today, and the kinds of details and sensitivities are going to be difficult for any one person to grasp, particularly, you know, let's give some uh, deference to Senator Sanders. He's got a lot of things on his plate, and it was in the middle of you know, one of probably many obligations he had that day. So to, to put everyone on the spot for everything seems a little tough. On the other hand, you know, there are a significant number of Christians in this country and a lot of institutions still affected by Christian beliefs. So it probably would be good to have some kind of minimal religious competence. And this is really a challenge, not just for Senator Sanders, but really for a lot of people coming out of American higher ed today, where the level of competence is pretty shockingly low. If you had been vote, how might you have wanted to respond in this situation? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a tough question to try to put my shoes in here. Um, I, I, I guess I would focus on the claims of what I'm supposed to be and try to reframe the question and the claims into the positive sense of what the Great Commission calls me to do as a Christian and to be in this world. And then I think to reinforce, as he tried to do, the, his commitment to treat people fairly under the law and to, to work hard at that. And I mean, you mentioned earlier, Morgan, the problem and challenge of implicit bias. We, we are all struggling with that in our own ways. And I think the best we can do as imperfect human beings is to work really hard to un understand what those are and to receive feedback and to work to be even more fair and more just in our dealings with others. Yeah, I think, Mark, you brought up something interesting when you were saying you want to judge people by their actions and not necessarily by things that they have written or even said or even sitting in front of a hearing, right? Because at least in the way that our political process works, we still use hearings and that allows people to say whatever they would like. I mean, obviously they're under oath when this comes up, but you can kind of decide to say things and spin things as eloquently as you want to. And that's not necessarily a guarantee of what type of decisions that you're going to make. So it's just an interesting way that we have of confirming people. Yeah. So it's probably, I don't know what role his history uh, of how he made decisions in his previous offices, how much of a role that plays in these hearings. But it does seem to me it's a both-and world. You do want to find out what people think, because it'll give you a clue to how they might act in the future. But <laughs> a clue. You, but you also might want to uh, have the humility to say, okay, uh, to get back to one comment, whether our senators or leaders should be fully religiously aware of all the faiths, maybe not, but it does seem like a simple, a simple exercise in tact or open questioning might be helpful. So in this case, when Sanders hears that 
this man believes that uh, no one is saved except through Jesus Christ, he might back up and say, that's surprising to me that you would believe that. Uh, tell me why you believe that, and how can you believe that and serve the public? You know, in a more in a more open-handed way, admitting he's shocked at the statement, but while still continuing the conversation to go deeper to try to understand who this person is and why their beliefs, how their beliefs do and do not affect, and putting the public. onus on them, right? Like you make the case to me, yeah, for how exactly. this is not going to because they do have to make the case if they're going to get that office, and if they're not, if they can't do that, then they shouldn't get the office, obviously. And Mark, you're pointing to the importance of posture and tone, which unfortunately a great number of our elected officials are missing today. So that's a it's a hard ask, but I think it's an important one. So John, before Mark and I were on this podcast, we were kind of discussing about when Vote wrote about his beliefs. He was doing so in a space that was meant to be consumed by other Christians. And yet this was information that also became public knowledge. You know, it surfaced a year and a half later when he's trying to get this particular political position. Is there a space today where we should have great confidence that we can speak freely um, without the general public listening in? I think that space is getting smaller and smaller. And certainly I think anything you put in writing, you should assume is going to see the light of day. And even a, a private kind of correspondence is at some point uh, plausibly going to become public. And this is going to be an important shift in how all of us uh, in this digital age think about public and private and what it means to correspond and what it means to think thoughts openly. There have to be spaces where we can try out ideas and take risks in our understanding of things. But the more we do that in writing or the more we do it in semi-public settings, the likelier it is to end up public at some point. That's a, that's a real important challenge for us culturally today. I think a lot of people haven't quite internalized the breadth of that change in our society. Well, certainly, yeah. As soon as we started publishing online, we quickly became aware that we were being read not just by our subscribers, but also other Christians of other traditions other than evangelical, but also from people who aren't Christians at all, and some are even hostile to the faith. So it's become second nature to us to write in light of the fact that we know that a whole variety of people are going to be reading this. We still have to address our primary audience, evangelical Christians, but we understand there are people looking over the shoulder and reading what we're saying, and that has changed how we how we write. Some things we wrote back in the 60s and 70s in the magazine as such that was only being read by the subscribers in their homes, we couldn't we couldn't articulate things in the same way. Well, one point that I feel like you've made multiple times, Mark, is that people's arguments should be recognizable to them. Yeah, and so one of the ways we do that is we don't just, when we disagree with someone and we're writing an article, let's say, against, against abortion or for immigration reform, one of the things that's a really important standard for us is that when we present the opponent's argument, when they read that argument, they will recognize it and say, yes, that is what I believe, and that is the context in which I believe it. That's a fair statement. And I think that's one way we, we do that at CT, to make sure that those listening outside of our world will at least see us as trying to be fair-minded and honest and truthful in how we report. I think that's a really important value. And I think another aspect of this change in digital communication and the shift of public and private is that it asks all of us to be more authentic and consistent in our messages across different platforms and to different audiences. And so there was a time when someone would say one thing in public and then quite a different message and tone to the private group of donors or the other kind of uh, conversation. And that divide still happens, but I think less and less, and I think it's going to be exposed more and more such that people should be making consistent arguments uh, across multiple platforms. That doesn't mean we use the same language. So when I'm writing 
something specifically for Christians. I'm going to use the resources of scripture and the tradition that we share in order to make arguments in a certain context. But it does mean that I don't want to make fundamental claims that are going to be incompatible or inconsistent with claims I make in other different kinds of writing. I think it also requires a a new level of humility because people are going to be able to read and research and bring up every single thing we've ever said or written online. (laughs) Right. And uh, to write with the notion that your entire literary body is going to be up for grabs and your audible body now with podcasts is up for research by everybody. It only serves us well to recognize that we're all in a journey trying to understand the world and our faith and our lives and our families more and more, and that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to change our minds about things. And there are other people out there who disagree with us that actually have something to speak into our lives. It's really important. And that approach, I think, will help us maintain conversations with those who are di- who differ from us in even significant matters. I think it also indirectly makes the case for why there's still a, a large value about meeting in person, especially when it goes back to what John is talking about, about trying on ideas and that there is a certain level of candor that we're going to be able to have when we meet with other people that will be completely different than any other digital space that we might um, exchange ideas ideas because they will not be <laughs> documented in the same way or they will be safe from that type of um, sense that you put it out there and anyone can find it later. So John, as you're very well aware, one of the biggest issues for evangelicals in the past decade has been religious liberty issues. And I'm just wondering if you see Sanders' line of questioning as a significant religious liberty issue. Yeah, you know, I've read some commentary suggesting that it is, but as I was saying earlier, I don't see actually a, a clear establishment clause violation or a clear free exercise concern from this line of questioning in isolation. I think it's possible that it's signaling a greater political hostility toward non-relativistic faith claims, and that's a concern going forward. But uh, So I don't want to be dismissive of it, but I also don't want to, to say that it's an existing religious liberty challenge. On the other hand, I, I think it's very important for Christians not to oversimplify the extent to which we want people to separate beliefs from actions. So at some point for some people, the beliefs themselves are going to be the problem and there's not going to be any way around that. So think about the Brendan Ike controversy with Mozilla when Ike was fired as the CEO for Mozilla. All the evidence that I read suggested that when it came to LGBT uh, employees that Ike was extremely fair-minded and there were no complaints uh, about him or or about his treatment of employees. But the fact was he held a belief that was out of step with Silicon Valley norms, and that was too much for the board. And so it it is often going to come down to the belief itself. Uh, And it doesn't matter how nice or how winsome or how relevant or how kind people are. And thinking about pastors and other church leaders who have blogging, speaking, or any other communication platform, what should they take away from this incident? Most of the commentary I read, and I didn't read everything, but most of it was, I think, pretty good and pretty fair in trying to point out the the problem that this exchange with Senator Sanders highlights. The, the one takeaway I had was that as spun up as people got about this issue, and rightfully so, uh, I think there needs to be a continued concern about other kinds of political discourse, particularly that uh, is targeted uh, at people other than Christians in a negative or hostile way. So we have plenty of examples from the current administration and other political leaders that are are going after uh, in politically and morally and religiously inappropriate ways people of other faiths or people of no faith. And for Christian pastors and bloggers to ignore those 
instances or circumstances and focus only on the kind of uh, attacks on my team or my tribe, that's going to start to look like special interest or special pleading. And that's not what we need to be doing right now. Well, thank you everyone for this really great conversation. As I was listening to this podcast, I was thinking to a podcast that Mark and I recorded a couple weeks ago. It is episode 59. Yes, Christians can love Jesus and their Muslim neighbors honorably. And I would recommend that podcast to anyone who wants an example of how you can hold these beliefs and be in really strong relationships with people who are not Christians um, in a very vibrant way. We had Bob Roberts on the show and he gave lots of fascinating and really fun examples of how he's really built strong relationships with the Muslim community. And I think that is just kind of a, a good corollary episode. And maybe when would answer Bernie Sanders' questions in a really interesting way if he um, got to know Bob. And as usual, we welcome your feedback. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Hopefully everyone has something joyful that they're willing and able to share. John, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. So, well, I will, I'm going to start with my kids. I, I, I'm so grateful for my kids. And my daughter, Lauren, is 10 today. So happy birthday to Lauren. And another uh, moment of joy lately has been uh, a fixation of mine with a board game called Railways of the World that is occupying way too much of my time. So my thanks to my friend Andy Murphy for introducing me to that game. So this is different than Ticket to Ride? It is, yeah. It's kind of a step up uh, in probably cost and uh, time <laughs> investment, uh, but it's a really fun game. So I encourage you to go out and buy it if you don't want to go out and buy my book. And what's your book called? The book is Confident Pluralism. That's awesome. We have a most listeners know we have a board game lunch here at CT, so I will be asking around and see if anyone wants to buy it and we can play it at lunch. Excellent. You're also on Twitter, too? I am, yes, at John Amnazu. Mark. Well, a few years ago, I built a picnic table for my home, and I wanted to make it a little bigger, eight-foot table, than a more, the usual six-foot table. And over the years, it, it began to warp because I didn't support the middle properly. And the joy I had yesterday was taking off those boards and replacing them and putting in a new support system underneath. That's awesome. A very simple job, but I can't believe how much happiness that gave me. Well, it's really cool when you, like, notably are you with your own hands made your home life better yeah so that's one of the things that brings me great relief and satisfaction and i sometimes wonder if, if i'm in the wrong business because i do find a great deal of joy after i finished writing or speaking or doing whatever i do here but i will say a, a notch above that is when i do a project that demands my both my mind and my hands and i will sometimes like after i'm done painting a room or remodeling something i'll just at the end of the day, I'll just sit down and I'll just look at it for 10 minutes. That's do nothing awesome. else. And it just gives me a great deal of satisfaction. I feel like that's different than, you know, when after we're done editing articles, we just do not want to look at the article. Well, or, <laughs> or, or you think after it gets published, oh, I should have done this. We should have done that. We shouldn't have done this. We should have done that. And sometimes it's much simpler to say, if I fix the light switch, the lights work or they don't work. There's not a lot of debate about it. Your table metaphor also gives you, or your table example also gives you a nice, nice life metaphor of not forgetting the middle part. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the middle support. Yeah. All right, Mark, where can people find you? I am, I produce something called The Galley Report, which can be found at christianitytoday.com slash The Galley Report, in which I link and make commentary on various articles. So go there if that's the sort of thing you think you'd enjoy. My precious moment 
Well, I guess I have a couple. The first one is that one of my best friends from college, whom I met on the first day of college, is coming into town this week, and I'm really excited to see him. I've been to his family's house multiple times for holidays, and it'll just be a lot of fun that he will be in here in Chicago. And my second precious moment is that my circus show is this weekend, and I've been training for it for like two months, and I'm like really nervous and also excited. Your what show? My circus show. What is that? What is that? It is... (laughs) I'm doing two acts. I'm doing a solo act on single point trapeze, which I will have to explain to everyone. People can go on Twitter and ask me about this later. And then I'm doing a group act on Lyra, which is like a giant, what I call like a giant hula hoop, but it hangs from the ceiling and it's a lot heavier. So you never cease to amaze me. Mark, how did you not know this? I did not know this about you. That's because I'm an, a person who never listens. Remember we talked about <laughs> that at the beginning? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've been doing circus classes since I started, like a month after I started here at CT. How about that? That is fantastic. So I'm really excited. And I like, this is only the second time I get to perform. So anyway, that's Saturday and Sunday. Okay. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to us this week. This podcast is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And again, the best way to show love and support for the podcast outside of subscribing to CT is by going to Apple Podcasts and rating and reviewing us. If you do decide that you would like to subscribe to CT, you can do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. That is it for us. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.